0: today on paradoxical i'm joined by danielle ruttenberg of remark glass danielle it is great to talk to you and it was taking us a while to kind of coordinate this interview i really appreciate you sticking with it because i think you're doing really cool work and i'm excited to have a conversation with you today so thanks for coming on
1: thanks so much for having me i'm excited to again finally get to have this conversation with you it's been it's been some time but i feel like there's a lot brewing
0: Let's start by give us like the thumbnail sketch of what is remark glass like what do you do what's your business about
1: Absolutely so we are a creative glass upcycling studio we take bottles and jars we heat them up and we transform the material into new wares barware lighting tabletop accessories and we do a combination of direct consumer and B2B operations here so our balance is working with a lot of small businesses that are maybe packaging their own goods, restaurants and bars that are bringing recycled glassware into their establishments and then our direct consumers pretty nationwide and some international and they're buying anything from one or two glasses to an entire tableware setting for their for their family home, sometimes a chandelier or a kitchen island lighting. So it's it's an exciting project we have definitely started in a very creative space. And then after some time, we really looked at the opportunity for more impact as we were increasing the amount of glass waste we are pulling and diverting from the waste stream here in Philadelphia.
0: So yeah, you're based in Philadelphia. And now, so is all of your source material for the products that you sell, is it all basically effectively recycled glass or is any of it original glass from somewhere else?
1: It is 100% recycled glass. So we have a nonprofit organization bottle underground that we founded in 2020 after we kind of got a sense of the force and snowball of the amount of glass that was coming in from the community. We've decided to formalize that. And what that meant was having strategic drop-off and collections of recycled glass from our community partners, and that is inclusive of direct residents that live in the area, and then also restaurants and bars that are interested in doing something alternative with their waste.
0: So do you have any sense of like how much glass you have processed in 2023?
1: I don't know the number off the top of my head. I should have it in front of me, but I can tell you that we recycle about 12,000 pounds a month right now. Wow. And Sometimes a pound converts into one bottle, and sometimes it's two. It's a lot. It's a lot of glass. And I know that we just went over from when we actually started tracking data. Let me just say it that way. We just met a little over 250,000 pounds since our start of it as an organization.
0: That's a lot of beer bottles. Yeah. I mean, and other bottles, of course. But <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, People, people so have is... a lot of habits, you know.
0: For well, for sure. So like tell us about like where did the idea for this come from and how did you get it started? It's it's like it's such a cool thing that you're doing. But I was like, how does one get the inspiration for this and then go and take and say, you know what? I'm gonna build a business around this.
1: It's actually a lot more simple than the than what we've built. It was really much around designing to an accessible source material that was right in front of us. So we really wanted to look at some of this bottle glass that was out on the street say hey like what what can this be the glass industry itself or the arts glass industry specifically there's a lot of waste and the the source materials are becoming more and more expensive and hard to find we were seeing a lot of glass studios private glass studios not being able to get the regular batch that they had been accessing for years and years and all of a sudden they were needing to make changes which was affecting their whole operation So there was a little bit of economic choice in the matter, but then also it it was a design challenge. Like, this is a really difficult material. The recycled glass is a lot stiffer than the glass that we've seen in our arts arts background. And it makes us work a lot quicker. So again, originally, we were really just eager to see the potential of the material. That being said, we did really start with bottles that were our own, something that had value to us. So this concept of the glass having a memory and being able to tell a story with whatever it had rebirthed into was really exciting to us. So we took an anniversary bottle that had been sitting around in my basement and started playing with that first. Like, How can we make this into a giftable and usable item? something that's not just collecting dust but becomes a functional part of the home and that really was the birth of a remark and our keepsake line which has been really successful with us in terms of gifting market
0: what are the sorts of things you do
1: with that specific line so this is very very popular in the wedding gifting market we do a lot of the champagne bottles from your toast convert it into something you get to keep and that is going to look like typically a serving bowl or a vase but we have done some really cool adventurous products where we we had a couple that got married at a vineyard and so all of the wine bottles from their experience got converted into all of their barware so all of their stemless wine glasses were actually from their wedding and it was such a it's such a beautiful story it's this really got a timeless and impactful story behind it so it's really just a lovely gift and a a way to kind of keep a memory alive to to be able to talk about an event because the thing that's in front of you is triggering the exact memory of when that happened i think is really an invaluable sort of gift
0: we have this attachment to physical symbols of things we've been through things we've experienced and all of that but as we all know, one, those things take up a lot of space and two, they can often be very, very impractical. Like again, yeah, you know, I have this wine bottle and it's like, that's fine, but it takes up space and so what am i going to do with it, put it on a shelf. It doesn't do much good there. So this idea of being able to then take this and transform it into something that has ongoing use and value, but still ties to that memory. It's like being able to reuse materials. It's seems like such a more environmentally, Friendly way of doing this, rather than let's create more new stuff, you know, and, and extract more more raw materials. But with glass specifically, interesting material. Um, and I'll take this note for for folks who don't know much about glass or glass blowing. It's it's worth doing a little like learning about because it's just this really amazing. Process. And there's, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there was a um, reality competition show about glass blowing too that's got a few seasons on Netflix and it's totally worth watching. It's super entertaining. The people on it are great. And it really, like, I've always been, been that glass blowing was cool, but that took it to a whole new level. But for you, this is a long way of me getting to my question for you is for you, what drew you to doing? glass and working with glass as a physical artist because it's such a different material also very difficult and challenging to work with in certain ways.
1: Yes, it really is. I totally blame a little pyro gene that I have for for my first introduction <laughs> to the glass world. I can recall the exact moment that I got hooked, if you will, and I did go I did go to art school. I went to Tyler School of Art, which is Temple University, a local state school's art program, which is is really uh, widely respected and has, of course, a glass program that, start, that started in the 70s. Through a sculpture class when I was maybe a sophomore, we got this experience of making a mold and then bringing it into the glass studio and having some of the grad students there pour molten glass into the the thing that I created. So the sheer action of watching what looks like lava poured into something that you made and then having it have this like really cool outcome, I was like, "Mm -hmm. I'm spending money to be here right now. I'm going to learn how to do this. I never really thought that I would venture to have my own business in this. I think I always had this notion that I would Teach and make my work and do something that was like this weird artist balance that I had vision for myself. I did a lot of volunteer work growing up as well, so I was teaching young students how to do stained glass and just arts in general and after-school programming. So I had thought about art therapy. I had thought about some sort of teaching notion and working with young people and giving back in some way. And that really did convert in a, a wildly different way down the line. Of course, I didn't start Remark until, we were, until I was literally pregnant with my first child. So I had kind of some time where I did explore all these avenues of art therapy and, and working the arts and working with the youth and trying to kind of like put something together that made a lot of sense. And I think as so many artists do, we piecemeal this like gig life together, and I wanted something stable. And so that was where this, this moment of like, okay, if we make a business, if we find viability in making products from this waste material, can we create a, a sustainable line, sustainable in, in all of the terms that you think of, and make it something that we can live off of and actually create a business that is working through this in a different way.
0: Now, if I'm remembering, if I'm remembering correctly, there were three of you who all started remark class together, is that correct?
1: That is correct, yes.
0: So tell me about that because that's that's a I mean, it's not unusual to have a couple of co-founders, three is a little little less common in my experience, but I'm I'm curious about how you've experienced that from a standpoint of how it has helped the business and where maybe it's created some challenges and how you've navigated those as the business has grown and evolved.
1: So the story has it that Rebecca who's the the primary co-founder myself we're both kind of at this early stage motherhood experience and the industry and mothering are not really like it's just not easy to have a kid and, and be a glass blower let's put it that sure. way. And it's not really easy to have a kid and be in any industry at this point and to have a nine to five job and to not have the finances to have childcare all the time is is a challenge. So we decided that a collaborative effort would be the best route. And Mark, her husband, I went to school with him at Tyler. So the, the conversation, the dialogue was really it was interesting because he was he was very much like 100% working in a different job when we started, but was working with us to do the prototyping and get some of the initial designs ready. And it, I think it was about two years into business that we pulled him in full time. Becky and I had been doing like all of the business end, sales, marketing, planning, all of the stuff, and and Mark came in as our lead fabricator. I think that we've done a lot together to make this business work for ourselves, for our families. We've done a lot of tag teaming. I think as we've grown, finding our swim lanes has been really challenging. I think Mark's role is is more clearly defined in that we have him in the hot shop. He's, He's blowing glass. For Becky and I, especially as we expanded into having the nonprofit, or was uh, as well, like having Bottle Underground alongside what we were doing. Who's fundraising? Who's going out and talking to media? Who's doing sales? Who's generating leads? And, and HR, we wore all of the hats initially, and it wasn't until now, just about two years ago, we hired on somebody for HR and a marketing manager, which were like my role was a little bit heavier on the sales and the marketing if we had a venn diagram and becky's was a little bit heavier on like payroll and hr and so we were able to like offshoot some of that and now have managers that are working with us and under and alongside us which is hugely helpful but again like dividing and conquering these spaces in a way that our managers know who to come ask what questions to and make sure that we're not overlapping or redefining what one has said and there's no good cop bad cop because i think that's like the death of a business right the parenting part so it's it's been good it's been good in a lot of ways and i feel like we've had our ups and downs in like really defining that space for ourselves because everything that we did was so collaborative and it was so like we were making so many decisions together and I think that the scaling now, there's a lot of times where we just need to be like, go, like everything in this category, you go, I trust you. It's good. It's It's got its tension still. But I think that it generally, generally, I think that helping to, again, define the swim lanes is the um, course of action. I think that we have been working on it and it's always a work in progress.
0: Well, it seems like that's a thing that you've done more and, and more of number one number two the other thing i'm hearing is you've built a degree of trust in each other and your willingness to <clears throat> to kind of be like okay here this is yours you go run with it learning to let go of stuff and to get focused and narrow sometimes that's difficult for folks who are building companies to like kind of let go and hand things off has that been the case for you or
1: I love delegating. It's like my favorite thing to do.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, then for you, I, yeah. this is great for you then. Yeah,
1: I think, <laughs> I think Becky holds on a little bit more than I do. But I do think there is, I think there's a line of trust that can be crossed. I think that when you're dealing with employer, employee mentality, no matter how much sense of ownership an employee can exhibit, there's still this notion that you're the man. I hate saying that. I hate like I hate that idea. I really do feel um, that I try to keep myself on the same level as everyone. And there's no task that's too low in our organization. Everyone pitches in and I want that to always feel that way, but it's also like if you're not carrying your weight, there's going to be a tension, you know.
0: Um, and for you though, as someone who is comfortable delegating, that I, I would say is, is actually gives you a real significant advantage relative to a lot of founders, because I see that's actually one of the areas where they can sometimes really struggle is knowing when and where to hand stuff off. Question that comes up for me is for you, I hear this real desire to not, to not build an organization that has an overly hierarchical feel, right? And to, to kind of operate at the same level. But as you said, at the same time, someone's, sometimes there's got to be accountability. Someone's got to be an authority. How do you navigate that balance of both being the leader and sometimes maybe having to, you know, be be in charge, crack the whip, do whatever things you need to do, but also do it in a way that still keeps you feeling to the rest of the team, like relatable. And like, you're really one of them.
1: I'm definitely a fiery personality. And when, when things go wrong, I think it's very apparent that I'm pissed off, but I always will lighten with a joke. 99 out of a hundred times I'm going to, I'm going to say, okay, it's just glass, glass breaks. I'm always more concerned about uh, everyone's health and well-being, but I do, I do get to be um, oftentimes a little bit of the, the whipcracker here. I think I just always try to keep a smile on my face. I'm like, you know what? This is going to help us. This is not about me. I'm not, our organization, I try to be really transparent about our finances to a degree of, of comfort. And I'm not, here making millions i'm not really making more than anyone else here at this point so i like to just take things one step at a time and if there is a problem i'm going to just address it head on with as much grace and love and empathy as i can yeah and then say a joke at the end because lighten the mood you know <laughs> i'm not <laughs> i can i can't give an example of a joke right now because that's too on the spot but I, i'm Highly sarcastic um, with my stuff. And I, I try to just keep it light and funny. And, like, yeah, we're not in a life and death situation here. We're making stuff. We're making stuff. We're selling stuff. We are making impact with what we do. We are diverting waste. We are thinking creatively about all this waste. And that's really exciting. And it's something that's innovative. But in, in the end of the day, like, if you got kids, your mom, your dad's sick, that's what's important. We are people. And I think that just keeping it people first is the most important
0: thing. That sounds like a really, yeah, keeping the focus in the right place and keeping kind of a perspective there about what really, really matters. And the fact that, again, as you said, we're, we're doing, we're making stuff with glass here, but also I I think your point about humor is a really good one. It's like, that's one of those things where it, there's just something about bringing humor into the conversation and whatever way we do it, that changes the tone. It changes the feel about it and it allows us to sometimes it's it's kind of like the same thing with like giving you know your dog some kind of you know a medication and like wrapping it in peanut butter right it's like it's like it adds this little package that lets you deliver the thing you need to deliver but still does it in a way that says hey i'm trying to do this from a place of caring and making it as as you know painless as possible or or what have you so let's talk a little bit about the mission piece and the, and the materials and so tell me about how how you source all of this glass and how that has evolved and changed the business has grown?
1: It started with friends and family literally dropping glass off in paper bags or boxes from their homes. We got to know people's eating and drinking habits really well. And, you know, it came from a really non judgmental place. It started in such an organic way where people were like, oh, we love what you're doing. We want to help, we want to contribute. And so our neighbors and friends would start bringing their glass down. That quickly turned into about like 200 pounds a month, then a thousand, then so on and so forth. And I think that what triggered the biggest uptick was definitely in the start of COVID in Philadelphia, we saw... What we always knew was that the glass was in in our, we have single stream recycling here. So we always knew that the glass was going into the trucks. It's breaking down. It's getting mixed in with plastics, cardboard, aluminum, all sorts of other stuff, stuff that probably doesn't belong in the recycling at all. And the glass gets rather contaminated and then goes on to, in Pennsylvania, become alternate daily landfill cover, which is like reducing flies on landfills, which is another use for it. I'm not saying there's not a need for that, but it's not the greatest value of the material. And a lot of the glass that we see through these streams is going there. When, if it's treated with a little bit more cleanliness, there's bottle-to-bottle recycling, getting it back into the glass manufacturing plants, but it has to be separated you can't have your colors blended together. You can't have battery parts. You can't have metals. It's all going to affect the production. So we knew this was happening that way. But then even further, during like the first elements of shutdown, there was a huge crisis around trash and waste coming from residential. And so we started seeing people were filming that the recycling was just going straight into the trash trucks so that was our moment we're like okay if you want to do something like that you saw these alternative recycling systems kind of popping up they were there but not as widely used and especially because your tax dollars are paying for your waste systems you're not seeing as many folks interested in paying for something else so we started formalizing our drop-off sessions and said, you know, people in South Philadelphia, come. Come one, come all on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 11 and 2. And then started some Saturdays. And then we also added on, we have e-bikes. We we acquired some cool e-bikes that have trailers on the back that can hold up to 200 pounds. And we started sending out for residential pickup. And then a couple of bars and restaurants and a couple of like refill stores in the area signed on and we have a paid service. So that evolved and now we have a whole system and we dispatch a couple of days a week for pickups. We definitely need a truck now, but we're still doing the bike thing. Every once in a while when we have bigger events based pickups, we'll rent a vehicle. But parking is kind of a situation here. So even if I had a vehicle, I wouldn't have anywhere to put it.
0: The challenge of operating in a big old city, for we sure. Are,
1: yeah, we and we're like in the heart of South Philly, which is very residential. Parking's always been a problem. Um, and space is now also just really hard to come by. So that's how it has shifted. We're, we're definitely hitting some walls there, so it's cool. <laughs> but um it's interesting to see how engaged the community is in really doing something different. We get a great number of volunteers that are interested in in helping us to delabel and clean the glass and make sure everything's like ready for wherever it's going. And we do have through Bottle Underground, we we ventured to a couple of different end markets. So we're doing we kind of have this glass hierarchy. So about 20%. Is remarked glass upcycled, getting some heat, turning into something a lot more expensive, giving a lot more value back into the uh, local economy. Um, and then we also have recirculation. So that's mason jars, jars that local businesses can use if they're filling some sort of containers. And then our aggregate, we have a pulverizer, we're making glass sand. And that's used for green stormwater infrastructure projects where we're actually planting this sand as a, a plantable soil.
0: I didn't even know that was a thing. That's really cool.
1: Glass sand is, a, is I think, we're going to see a lot of growth there. But it's definitely the, when you're looking at the value of the material, it's the least valuable. But it's helpful because we have such a surplus of the amount of glass that's coming in. The beer bottles that we do get, the copious amounts of beer bottles that you, that you mentioned That glass isn't great for reuse because it is made to be thin and breaks down easily. So, better for pulverizing.
0: So, it really sounds like there's this, there's the, just this thing of looking at like, okay, glass comes in like literally all shapes and sizes, but also different qualities. And really thinking about in general, it sounds like you found this, you know, really broad way of being like, Let's see how much of it we can put to some secondary use and the use that we put it to just really depends on it, its condition, what what type of glass it is, and that sort of thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Our inventory is super stringent. We are looking at everything from shape, size, weight, thickness, color, and and that we're working more carefully on digitizing over time. So right now it's very manual. But we have some some things in the works to expedite that and make it a little more techie.
0: It feels like the kind of thing that it just kind of, you know, it starts and it kind of starts to build and build. And then it gets to a point where you start running into some really significant scaling issues along the way as some of the logistics come up. How have you how you kind of navigated that and, and worked through some of the scaling challenges? I imagine you have to have had here.
1: We're in it, like we're in it hard right now, which is good and bad. So we are in this, I'm literally in a, a basement right now which you can't tell, but we, we started our business in a very cool shuttered school building that has a lot of really interesting rooms. I'm right now outside of what used to be the girls locker room. And we've made a lot of creative use of this space, which is great. Again, the inner city qualities of where we are trucking access is difficult. Uh, Loading in and out of this space is difficult So like the physical limitations have been a huge barrier for us in terms of growth, but we're also priced out of a lot of the warehouse space that is here now. So the idea of like physically, the physical part of scaling is the the biggest challenge for us. Some temporary adjustments that I've been able to make just by assessing Our staff and our hours and our capacity internally, we've expanded and we've done a split shift that we just actually initiated a couple of weeks ago. So in terms of production, increasing productivity, taking a, a, a basic approach to increasing the bench time by increasing the hours and having a team that's starting earlier and a team that's going later. Just such a simple concept, but when you're a small team, management and oversight is kind of vertical in those moments. So it took us a little bit of time to be like, okay, yeah, let's let's expand how much time we're actually working and then we'll be able to produce more without needing a $2 million warehouse, you know?
0: I mean, you don't just have $2 million sitting around to get <laughs> no, a warehouse. Come come
1: on. On. I mean, if you know anyone, and that's just like one aspect of scaling that we're talking about, we're taking in a lot more material now, the, the mission and the brand has grown considerably over the last couple of years, not just from a standpoint of the product that's being sold through our e-commerce, but also through the notion of waste diversion and the educational factor that people understanding that this is ne- necessary and understanding that materials and our source materials are finite. So I think that people are starting to catch wind of alternative processes and we're one of the few actual case studies that we're showcasing that this is possible to do. So yes, I I think it's it's really interesting that we've had a, a wildly successful growth year and we're meeting our all of our goals. But at the same time, I think the 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 most challenging thing about scaling in this day and age is that the cost of living is so high. And we're trying to meet the needs of our people who all need to be making more money just to pay for their rent and their groceries. So our payroll has increased and increased. Our people, our majority of what we do, like we don't have basic costs like a regular business. We have recycled materials that need to be broken down and cleaned. And then they are ready for production. So it's all human cogs, right? It's all labor. And in order to do that, you have to pay living wage jobs. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way as it were, but that's really kind of a key element. We can't go out and source cheaper recycled glass because the point is that recycled glass has to come in and then become a product that can be developed.
0: This is just a, it seems like a a labor intensive enough process that, that creates some, some real challenges there until, or unless you find more ways, as you kind of said, working on to to be able to come up with more technical or more automated type solutions for this, there's a, a labor intensiveness to it that it sounds like really makes it makes it hard. At least if you're somebody who you know actually cares about things like, again, as you said, paying your employees yeah. a, a fair wage, um, which is a, I think a good thing to worry about. But again, it; it makes this very real challenge for you on how do we keep all of this viable um, and keep all these these different pieces. There.
1: Yeah, and I think that there's some real options for scaling the operational side and that po- that pre production side to expedite the process, but it also does require more space and more upfront funds to like the, to get better cleaning equipment, to get better. Like, there's a couple of different machines that I could think could aid in our process, but might need to be customized a little bit to exactly what we're doing because we are dealing with. Different shapes and sizes of bottles, and not just one, not just one form fit. I th- I can think of a couple of really easy direct purchases, but I do need another 10,000 square feet to make it an actual setup. So yeah, we're running into some walls there for sure. It's it's interesting, but I think that we're also in a place where we can stabilize the growth probably for another couple of years until we make that full transition, but it's always, I think we're always putting a Band-Aid somewhere.
0: Well, and I think that's that's one of the challenges of growing certain types of businesses for sure is the, it's kind of the like figuring out which fire do we focus our attention on or which problem do we focus on solving um, when there's like eight of them that ideally we'd be solving, but we don't have the right combination of time, resources and, and finances to, to be able to do that. And so figuring out how do we organize all of this so that we can get a sustainable growth path is a challenge. Now, I wonder here, as I'm, my brain's like thinking about this, is do you feel like you coming from a creative background and being someone who's, you know been learned in practice, being creative in a physical sense, but do you think that there's anything about that that helps you and how you approach the, I'll say the business creativity that's needed to, to navigate these?
1: Yes. Yes. And I think that My mind, I think Becky's mind and my mind, we don't think about things in such a linear way that there's always kind of a creative workaround. And we've done a lot of, you know, leap in the net will appear. And I can't say that that's the best thing to do, but sometimes that creative entrepreneurial risk taking mentality is really necessary to be able to grow. Like, I think that having a creative mind allows us to think so outside of the box about certain things. And it's just been really helpful. We also have lent really heavily on educational sources in Philly and Abram to help guide us. And I feel really confident in saying that I've always asked for help and that I've always admitted fully that I am a creative first and that I did not go to business school. And so... I am going to lean on those consultants and and coaches that have helped me along the way to, to weigh things out and to make the more calculated decision. And just because our business model isn't, it's not conventional to think about circularity, to think about people and the planet a little bit before the profit. It's not, right. it's not the typical model.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting what you said though, the, this, and the piece about, well, two things stick out to me. One you coming from the creative background, like where you're more comfortable and willing to just be like, Hey, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I need some help or support, or I'm not really sure what to do here from a business standpoint. Of course, the reality is that like anybody who's building a business runs into stuff where they don't know But I think for some folks, this, you know, I've got my MBA, I should know this stuff kind of thing. Probably, probably gets in the way for them, but for you clearly not. But you were talking about, you know, sometimes making these, these choices, these leaps or taking these risks, What for you, when you're assessing one of those, like how do you get to the decision point of like, okay, we're going to do this or not. When it sounds like it's sometimes it's a, well, we're going to take the leap. We'll see if the net shows up or not. So it's not like a sure thing. So so where do you get to that point of like, okay, we're going to go for this one or no, we're not.
1: I think we have a pretty good decision-making process. There's, There's always things we get stuck on. If we have a weekly meeting where we talk about like, okay, this is where this is our baseline for finances. And I think that Becky and I really keep ourselves in a great check because I think that she's usually holds things a little bit more to her chest and I'm a little bit more like, let's go. So I think that that's like a little yin and yang balance. And, and we really do rely on each other to keep ourselves in check. I feel like when there's a, when there's a quick decision, it's just like, it's known. And I trust my gut and I'm like, I think we should do this. And this is why. And we usually just make quick synopsis, like arguments to each other. And then we either agree or we don't. And every once in a while, we don't. And then we bring in a third person to weigh it out. And we might like kind of put things on the back burner for like a week or two while we're really simmering over it. And it might be like, okay, well, yes, but I need to make sure our finances are lined up before we make that decision. So let's make a goal of $20 Twenty more thousand dollars this month, so that we can do that. Like, it, there's always going to be a moment where I, I want to say yes to something, but I know that the cost is going to hit a little harder the, on the front end, and so I'm not going to say no to it. But I say like a yes if we can do this to make it work. And then how? And then how do we be creative about making that money? I feel like that is like always something that we have said, like we really want to do this. It's not a no, but how do we, how do we drum up like, okay, it's like, how do we drum up a little bit more money at this time to make this possible and then come up with a creative plan to do that?
0: Has that sparked any innovations or changes as far as any of the like product offerings that you have or the things that you do on a business end?
1: I can say that one of the most successful quick decisions we ever made was we do a mystery box like second sale every once in a while and we started it just as like a fun idea to do like a little fundraiser and now we do it I think about quarterly we'll run them and they sell out in minutes and I think there's something really interesting about the market wanting I think It's like a little bit more of an experiential gift and the idea that you don't know what's going to be in it, but like you have an idea of what's going to be in it is really enticing to people. So that was one that, yeah, like we kind of strategically place them at times when we know we're going to need cash flow. It's kind of like in between big projects. We're like, oh, we'll place a mystery box sale right on the tail end of Q3, you know, just to like pull us through as we're doing that extra heavy inventory making for q4
0: that's a great example i think of a really creative solution that attends to multiple issues at the same time right that's i mean that's super smart right You're because you're both like okay we've got these seconds here and we need this extra revenue and we've got this this kind of up and down of our revenue flow and oh wait a second let's try this and it tackles all three of those those problems and it brings a, a little bit of an element of fun um, and excitement you know, to the to the business at the same time. So that seems like exactly the kind of thing where being, you know, again, thinking creatively, thinking out of the box, thinking about how do we work with what we have here seems to really, you know, facilitate those sorts of of creative solutions the same way you're like, OK, we've got this glass.
1: What can we make with it? always going to be work that doesn't come out exactly as we wanted it, but we're not discounting our whole line. And I very rarely will throw a discount on our top of the line goods. I love added value. I love looking with kind of a a lens of, of how do we keep things affordable for people, but also really making sure that the nature of handmade work and the amount of labor and time and care that's put into the products that we make is really considered in the purchase of of the people who are, who are buying from us. So I think that's I think that the mystery boxes gives like an exciting second life to things that didn't quite make the cut in our traditional standards, but still gives them like a really interesting appeal and and still gives them a high value.
0: Now coming back to the the glass and the products, I'm talking about that a little bit, um, which I wanted to look at it a little bit more. So for these things, are you ever taking like glass from multiple sources and combining it into any of the products that you make, or is it generally taking a specific thing and repurposing it, or what? What are what are some of the types of things that you you know that you produce? All, All of the above. Above?
1: Yes. No. So we start with a lot of our standard products are going to be one bottle became one thing. We are let's let's take a a standard 750 ml wine bottle. For example, a lot of wine bottles or sparkling water bottles in that case are cut down to a certain height in our shop. The top part we'll use the neck for a different thing. We'll use the body that's like the shoulder area for another part. The bottom base that has the the part that holds stuff. That becomes our cup. That's the part that gets heated up and becomes one of our stemless wine glasses or any, any variety of glassware that we have that's coming from that specific shape and size bottle. We do color sort all of those other parts that were cut off of the top. We have a pot of, of molten glass that's all cullet or the excess cut, cut off trimmings of all of the other bottles. We also do some of our high end pieces or you'll see on our website have multiple colors or layers of colors involved. So it'll look like the base of a champagne bottle with the neck of a bright blue sparkling water bottle attached hot and then stretched open so it creates this kind of linear effect with the color and it's really beautiful so we are combining that way but then also all of the components of our furnace which we're doing some different types of project are all broken down bottle parts as well from the furnace just to give an example of like some of the other other products that aren't just a direct bottle transformed we are doing lighting projects and mold cast projects out of our furnace. So that might look like small tiles or coasters or lighting fixtures that are blown into a mold that have you know, an optical texture on them. That's something that we're not necessarily getting through our more traditional bottle transformation technique. I think it's really, really. I, I always run into the challenge of describing what we're doing in the blowing Studio. Videos are very helpful. And yes, that Netflix show really helps people to understand. It's called Blown Away. Such a great representation of the process. Still, what we're doing is even a little different from what they've shown there. But you can see that we have a ton of reels on our Instagram and our TikTok where you can kind of see a little bit of that process. So if you're listening out there, take a look because it will resonate when you see it what i'm describing
0: yeah totally i'm gonna i'm gonna link some stuff in the show notes for this and i absolutely will, will tell folks like you want to see some of the visual it's just it's it's a really amazing process it's it's again i have the thing i've known some about but when i watch blown away i'm like this is so cool it is like it's easy to understand why people get compelled to create with glass Whether or not they might have some pyro tendencies, which a lot of people do, I can relate to that. It's such a fascinating material to work with because of all the things that it can do. So it's really easy to see why it's compelling. And it's neat how you've evolved and and kind of figured out all these different sorts of products and things that you can make and do. All with a bunch of really, in a sense,
1: used glass. It's all trash, right? And, (laughs) and, and, And yes, it's scientifically based magic. We get to do essentially alchemy every day. It's really a wild process and I love the qualities of the glass. It's like I've always said like it's juicy and it's like got this really amazing sculptural quality that not many other materials have because the concept of it free flowing at a certain temperature to then one move creating a solid thing both fluid and brittle at the same time it is really an intriguing material to play with it's definitely
0: kind of magic what would you say for, for you at least is like what is the coolest thing that you think remark has ever done as far as any products or things that you've made customer otherwise
1: design of some of our lighting elements and i love when we get to tell the brand story with the bottles like the source of the bottles was from coca-cola they're coca-cola bottles they have a really identifiable brand logo imagery a history to them and then fitting that into a space where the branding is relevant but also transitioning it to be not all about like not hitting you right in the face it's a little bit of a mystery that you're like oh you're looking at a chandelier and you're like wait they're all Coca-Cola bottles. And I love that notion of we're shifting the material so much that it's at first a little unidentifiable, but there's a little bit of a magic in that notion of the tonality or a little bit of the texture that gives you a reference that's triggering a memory that's making you realize, wait, this is something that I know. This has like a nostalgia to it that's really hitting a certain point in your brain. I think that's like the artist in me is, is seeing that shift is really fun because I do want to make stuff that's beautiful. There's a lot of co-branded or like commercially branded items, like swag sort of gifts out there that, you know, like a pint glass that has your, your name and logo here right on the side. I think that For people like using glassware in your home, that's not always what I want to see. I want something that's beautiful first, but then to have recognizable and distinguishable marks that give a nod to where that came from is really a nice way to blend it.
0: It gives this idea. There's a little bit of this, yeah, the sense of mystery. There's the, the relatability there, but it allows for this element of like delight and surprise to emerge as you kind of realize you're like hey, wait a second, that's, that's old Coke, whoa. That's, you know, it's like that kind of thing. And that's, it's really cool. So it's there and it's like, it's semi-secret. It's like this little thing. And for those who are curious, you you kind of can, you know, discover and uncover. It. And I think those are exactly the kinds of things that we really like. And at the same time, like I said, it 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 contributes to the story, it relates to the story. So it's this really interesting way of both being something that is practical from the standpoint of, again, reusing trash, as you said, That is beautiful from the standpoint of creating something new, something that's creative, something that really helps to emphasize a space or or a situation, but then also has this element of story and relatability to it. So it's this really cool intersectionality that you've been able to create with with these products that you're doing. It's amazing.
1: Thank you. I, I feel really good about it. I also feel like we're in a society where advertising is in your face all the time and I like to tone it down a little I see there's a place and a time for things to be really in your face but I think that when we're talking about product design and things that we're gonna use on a daily basis and, and live with if it has to be present I'd like for it to be minimally present and in, in a visual way I also you know I, my, my kid recently was like saying that he really loved Toyotas and I was like what are you talking about he's seven. I was like, what do you mean? You don't know what a Toyota is. And I realized that we're big baseball fans. We're going to the Phillies games a lot over the summer. And Toyota is one of the main sponsors. And wow, how effective is that? It's a big Toyota sign. So my point is, it doesn't have to be that overt. I think that we're all picking up on stuff all the time.
0: Well, that yeah it's absolutely true and I think there's there's a place for for subtlety and there's a, a kind of beauty that can can exist in that so that's really. Really cool, and such a again, like I said, neat, neat intersectionality that you've been able to create with the business of doing good in the world, of being creative, and you know making use of these these existing things. So I'm wondering, going back to the more the business side of things, if there is, um, I know you've talked about some of the scaling challenges and some of the other other difficulties there. So I'm wondering if there's a a particular thing in that realm of like things that we're wrestling with, um, you would uh, like for us to kind of dig into and unpack a little bit here. Today.
1: I think that this has been a a, a very interesting couple of years, like coming out of, I hate to even like say the, the, the C word again, but like coming out of COVID, we definitely had a deficit and did some shifting to a more like more online sales platform. And that was very successful. But again, the growth and like the bringing in of more people through our workforce development programs where we are, we are hiring people with barriers to work and then transitioning them into a like from a, from an intern into a full-time employment status i think that assessing that double bottom line model and, and where our traditional revenue streams are but all of the the value of the mission and where it costs more to create the wares that we are creating because there's additional labor and hr and background overhead to keep both the environmental and the people mission of our business at the forefront of what we do. So those costs and really having our fingers on the pulse of how those costs increase, I think has been both helpful and very challenging as we grow because to be strategic and calculated about sales is one thing, but to to make sure our people are housed and have stability in their lives, I think is really challenging. We're, and we're a small operation. So it might take a day of someone's time who's being paid a salary to make sure that hourly employees are taken care of and that their needs are met and that they're able to work and they're able to come to work. So that being said, while I think our, our traditional revenue streams are doing well, we need more to support the mission of what we're doing. Um, So looking at unearned revenue, grants, philanthropy in a city that's kind of overwhelmed by a need for grants and philanthropy, it's definitely competitive and challenging. And trying to wear that hat as a leader has, I think, been the biggest challenge for me. Because again, back to my background, it's it's not my wheelhouse. And so I'm really trying to teach myself a lot and and find the right partnerships and support for myself to be able to go out and make the asks that i need to make and it's definitely an uncharted territory for me
0: well i could imagine that's a very different very different sort of hat than you know making things out of glass in in a studio or even managing a company so so it sounds like first off just to to clarify what i'm hearing is i hear for you you're really aware of and really focused on making sure that from the standpoint of the business that um, some of the expenses that are in place that other businesses would choose to, to work on trying to, to make, to balance this equation that way. You're like, no, these are, like I hear this, these are givens, like we need to make sure that our employees are getting a living wage. We need to make sure that people are okay in doing that. And I think that that's, you know, that's great. And when we create something as a constraint, then the good news is we can be like, we're not gonna worry about this. We're, or we're going to worry about it, but we're not going to, that's not something we're going to treat as flexible. And I'm hearing that, mm-hmm. that that is definitely there, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so it really then does become right on the other side of the equation, like how do we balance this? Well, either we figure out other places we can cut expenses, which is a hard thing, especially when you're a growing business, mm-hmm. um, or it becomes, like you said, like, okay, how do we find more on the, the revenue side? And one can go only so far with products and product pricing. So on this, this piece with the grants and finding other sources of funding. Tell me about for you, the parts that you find most difficult or uncomfortable around that.
1: So I think, I think that we fit in a couple of different categories of with what we do. We're, we're arts based. We're solving an environmental problem. Our hiring practices are fair chance. We'll say. So I feel like sometimes we're kind of forced to pick a lane in that search for the acquisition of funds. And I think that what we do and the baseline of what we do is not about picking that lane. It's about telling the story as a whole. So I'm constantly like battling, okay, well, like what's this, this application falls here and this one application is over here. So like, just like finding the right fit is one thing, And then being the loudest one in the room is also really important. I feel like I've been passed over on things a lot of times in life because I'm observing and I'm learning and I'm not like, oh, yes, me, me, me. I don't feel like I have that personality trait. So (laughs) making the ask and knowing the right time and the right people and I might be a little bit more adventurous and less calculated in my business risks. But when it comes to making direct asks, I'm very calculated. And I don't know if that's, I need to talk to a psychologist about this one. I feel like there's some gender role in it. I think that I've Mm -hmm. been trained to quietly get work done really, really well and not ask for help and just to prove people wrong by doing it better.
0: I think, well, I, I you raise a bunch of, I think, really, I think, important things here. One, for you, but two, I, in, in general. Certainly, I, I'm not going to position myself as any I- I- expert on the challenges that women face. I can only go from my own experiences of talking with women and hearing and seeing that. But I am aware that there, I think, are two things that, one, certainly, um, I know this more in the world of like VC funding. There's a huge discrepancy between male and female founders as far as how funding goes, which is ridiculous and very problematic. To, to be clear, but I could see how that could apply elsewhere. But also, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pressures, socialization, and other things on women that are problematic from the standpoint of of this not being encouraged to, you know, stand up and to stand up for yourself. But also, there's just personality things that come into play for different individuals. As well, and so I think that's one of the things that can get in the way here is we we have these unconscious sort of messaging that we 've been receiving, uh, similar to your son and his toyota advertising but it 's like these things influence us right and, and they can they can get in the way. I think I'm hearing two real challenges here for you. It sounds like one is like you said, like picking which lane do we want to pursue one, but then two, how do we go about speaking up in a way? that allows us to be seen and to be heard and to get the kind of attention that we want. Is that right?
1: Yes. And let me step back to the first point of that. The picking the lane is that I think that for funders, they want a really clean and concise story of what it is that we do. And with the circular business model that we have developed and having two organizations that are umbrellaed in one, that story isn't super concise. Um, We have been really working hard on that the the marketing story there and being able to have the really concise language to the method of bringing together the personhood and and wanting to do better for the for the community And the environmental and like bridging those, but it's not some like if you if if I'm just like break it down and be like, okay, so we take bottles from the community and then we employ people from the community to take those bottles and recycle those bottles into five different categories of end markets. If I do it, am I having the right little box with pretty little bow to tell what it is that we're doing? It's not as simple. So, I, like when I'm when I'm talking about like finding a lane for these for fundraising or for philanthropy or foundational grant opportunities, it's that the impact of our story takes all of that and puts it together. But it's really hard to explain. So we definitely have been working hard on on finding that right language.
0: I hear a couple of things here that are, that are important. I mean, one, it is that is a challenge because what you are doing is one, it's unusual. It so goes so far as to say probably pretty unique. And it, as such, it's complicated enough that it doesn't lend itself to a little like two sentence explanation or what have you. But at the same time, I find myself wondering if what's not happening is you, you maybe are getting a little caught up in trying to, how do I give a comprehensive explanation of what this business is in two sentences versus capturing what the essence is? of your mission is and really pulling it back to this very kind of more simple thing and recognizing it's not going to cover everything in this level of detail, but it's going to capture the core energy, the core intent of what you're doing. I don't know if that's something that you've you've worked on, but that that feels like an area where I think you might be able to dial something in here.
1: I think I agree with that. I don't think I've worked on it in those words but yes and finding less analytical ways of describing is yes a key a key element and how we've been considering this we do have to tap into a feeling and emotion of uh, without being um exploitative of, right of, Well, will say,
0: say a little more about, the, right. about that and your concern there
1: um our people that we employ their stories are their own it's important that we are speaking to the nature of where we are. This is this is Philadelphia. There's gun violence. There's poverty. A lot of issues that we are faced with every day. I want to be sensitive to the individual stories and their choice to have their privacy and anonymity. But we are, I think, eager to give opportunity to people to have a better way of life. But uh, who am I to define what is better? I want to be sensitive and I want to help where I can and be just like continue to be in the right place at the right time for, for aiding and assisting an overall betterment for our community. I just think like a lot of our employees, like, I, I think it's just important that they have the ability to just come to work and not have this job be about the chance of the work that they got.
0: So that may be a thing where as an example, I think what I hear here is you're like, we don't want to overemphasize that. And in part, that's about trying to really be respectful to them and allowing them to begin just, just focus on doing their work and not really highlighting that, which might be a thing that's in thinking about like, what lane do you pick? Mm -hmm. That might be a pointer for you, right? About, about that and how you do that. But I also think there are ways in which you include that that can be both noting it and deemphasizing emphasizing it, or noting it and noting it in a way that is saying this is important, but we're not going to shine a spotlight on it, yeah, because there that's not really the the, the appropriate thing to do here. And so that, that's that's a thing. But I, I suspect here you can tell me if this is wrong or not, but I I, th- I suspect this is a thing where this feels like the kind of problem where we can get trapped in our heads of trying to like un- undo this puzzle versus. Doing what I think usually is what becomes necessary here is just starting to write things down and just starting to like write and just like just generate ideas and generate like literally dozens of them and then you know come back and pick them apart. But also to to really think about what are the core things that you both want to convey, but also what are the things that you don't want to highlight or don't want to be you know the focus. Which which it sounds like you know and you know finding ways to do it. Also one other thought here is I'm just kind of unspooling what's happening in my brain is there's the the theme here is like it's this almost like my brain's going like okay so it's like creating beauty from second opportunities or second chances right because it's like whether it's the second chance for the glass or some of the employees who have had their stories and their histories who are looking to you know to go a different direction with things and it's like from that there are these new and creative things that get created and that's a at the same time it's you know making making the world a better place on multiple levels. so it's like that's this really powerful story and what i'm I'm not sure about is like but from the standpoint of thinking about where do you target, I have to think there are people who that particular concept and idea is going to resonate particularly powerfully right yes but really again, any of the places you could em- emphasize and that's where it is is like generating enough things. Sorting them into like what against being sorting these different categories and then being like, okay, who will these stories resonate with so that we can then start to connect with them and talk about it and see if we can get them on board in supporting our mission?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I I think that I want our business to be its authentic self and I want for that to appeal to whom it needs to appeal to. I think that as a, a younger entrepreneur, I feel like I was oftentimes trying too hard to find a bit of this and a bit of that and and figuring out who like where i'm going to appeal to this party for what reason but i think that if we build what is the holistic picture of who we are then i think the right support will come into play and will what was it, a little like if you build it they will come moment <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I really do think that that's the that's where i'm at right now is just as you're saying, like getting it all out there. And then I'm just like envisioning this like little globe of like, okay, okay, this is the remark glass and bottle underground, like world. This is the thing that we've done. This is the thing that we've built. And while there's a ton of unconventional models as part of this circular business and potential for like furthering circular manufacturing, there's a lot of different like dynamic and abstract things to talk about in that mission i think that finding the right voice for it yes the right funders will come into play it's ho- it's just hard <laughs> it's hard well, it, it, it and, is and it's even complicated for yeah. my mind as we're like as we're doing it i think that every day we're we're tasked with not being too excited about another way we could take this material and and build upon the potential of reuse, it's because from a business standpoint, it's like we need the direct consumer like remaking glass into glassware part. Okay, done. We we got it. We have got that dialed in. We can still generate new products and come up with new designs and and have that be a, a fun and exciting uptick. But I think that what we're challenged with is not being like, oh, but like look at the sea of of how this material could be used, and like trying to dial ourselves in to stay true to like the at least the initial phase of what this business is and then stabilizing and then moving from there
0: one of the challenges of being creative is how do you manage the ideas and thoughts that come up huh and that's i think what i'm hearing here is that how do we we keep that that piece in check one other thing i just wanted to, to note before we the let this go and, and wrap up here is I, I'm, as I'm thinking about this and thinking about you you know, I'm talking to, to folks and potential funding grant sources, et cetera, the thing that's coming up for me is, again, I hear for you this desire to be, I'll say, kind of appropriate in how you present things and how you what you highlight and don't highlight. And at the same time, I think there's also, I hear the part about you, it's a little bit uncomfortable like putting yourself in this front and center kind of representative position. But what I would say on that is... If you can find a way for yourself to step out of it where you're, it's not really about you, it's about the mission. And you're just there as a representative of the mission, as someone who informs it. And really, when you can allow yourself to connect to really the power of what you're doing, not because it's better than anything else, not because it, but just because it is a good and worthy cause. You're doing good things in the world that matter, that are worthy of support, that are making a difference. And like finding a way to be able to kind of own that and, and know that that's true because it's like to, you know, to kind of do, if we want to go to, if you build it, they will come. Um, as anyone who's seen Field of Dreams, I love that movie dearly, knows it's not like you've got to really be kind of a little evangelical <laughs> in, in moments and do some crazy things. But I think that's the thing, though. Part of that is us being able to really connect to that awareness and that mission and what we're doing and really see ourselves as just happen to be the vehicle that is connecting that mission to, you know, or making awareness of that mission there for this person. And I think that's a shift that is sometimes uh, uncomfortable for people, but can be
1: really, really powerful when we make it. Kind of creative designer, maker standpoint. And the vision really grew as the business grew and as we saw more potential. So my role has evolved greatly. And finding my shoes as a leader in this and allowing the mission to be the thing that helps to take the exhaustion away because the small business operations is a daunting task in this economy. So knowing that now I I try not to associate it with like a weight on my shoulders, but I do feel it very much so that like there's a payroll that needs to happen that's up to us to make sure it happens. But then that going like that's so, I don't know, it's so bottom line, right? Allowing for there to be days where it's like, yes, and we are also transforming the the way in which a whole infrastructure of material and making could be viewed. There's a lot of power in that, even if we're quite small still. And so trying to harness that and be motivated by it, I am. It comes in waves. I agree with trying to almost pull myself out of it and... It's much bigger than I am at this point.
0: It's yeah, it is, and it's such it's such a cool, creative, fun, and yet really valuable and important thing that that you're doing with your business, which I really, really love, and I'm I'm glad we've gotten some time to talk about it here today. So, for folks who are who want to learn more about you and your products and all of that, what would be the place that you would suggest that they start? Instagram, your website, both somewhere else.
1: Yeah, you can learn a lot on our website. It's remarkglass.com. You can also check out bottleunderground.org where you'll learn a little bit more about the different types of recycling and upcycling and downcycling that we do here and the people we employ. And then our Instagram, if you're a really visual person, go there. I mean, that's what it's for, right? TikTok too. I feel like our Instagram really does tell our story the best in terms of a. you'll, you'll see some really cool videos. You'll see a little bit of our weekly activity and what we're making and get, uh, we do a great little segment called fireside Friday where you get to see what's happening in the studio and yeah, it's really fun. That's like the fun place. Yeah. That's For the sure.
0: Cool. Okay. Well, I will link everything in the show notes and so folks can, can check it out and definitely encourage you. This is a good example of one of those cases where it's like, the visual is is such an enhancement to really understand and see what's going on, and it contributes to the story a lot. So, Danielle, th- thanks again for for your time for coming on and for your 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 vulnerability here too, and talking about some of the the things that you're yeah you're wrestling with. It's because it is, as anyone knows who's built a business, it's uh, it's not always easy, and um, there are I think some specific and unique challenges that y'all have had to be working through here. So, I, I appreciate your willingness to to be upfront about some of that.
1: No, well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it and to bring up the hard stuff I think that we need to do that and we need to be transparent about these things so that people can understand that um (laughs) like the, the customer service person on the other side of the phone is actually just a person and that we're all just doing our part